0: Hello, and welcome back to Historical, where we're diving into words throughout time and history. Today, we've got a great story for all the bibliophiles out there, but also for anyone who appreciates a good, man walked into a bar joke. It's time today for the Epic of Gilgamesh. In the mid 19th century, Scientists were starting to unearth evidence that the earth was a whole lot older than anyone had ever imagined. This caused large parts of the scientific community, and the population at large, to panic, and set off a frenzy of archaeological activity trying to uncover evidence that biblical stories were true. Around the same time, the young George Smith was developing a burning fascination with ancient Assyrian culture and history. He fed this by loitering in the British Museum during his lunch hours, nosing around the cuneiform tablets. Eventually, and presumably because they realised there was no way to get rid of him, the museum set him to work analysing the tens of thousands of clay shards that had been shipped in from present-day Iran and which had been sitting around in dusty boxes ever since. They came from the remains of the Library of Ashurbanipal, which had been discovered and excavated by Hormujd Rassam, an Iraqi Assyrian Assyriologist. George Smith worked on these for 10 years, translating the cuneiform writing, searching for evidence of biblical tales, and generally having a cracking good time. But if he enjoyed himself doing that, it was nothing compared to what he felt when he eventually came across a flood narrative that resembled the story of Noah so closely that he was completely overcome with excitement and started stripping in his office. So the next time you ask yourself if you actually enjoy your job, remember, that's your benchmark of job satisfaction. Now, George Smith was excited because he thought he'd found definitive proof that these religious stories were true in the most literal way possible. But that's not necessarily the case. The similarity of these stories across multiple texts can be argued from both perspectives, right? So, by both those trying to refute and those trying to prove literal proof in these stories. It's a fascinating debate that we aren't even going to attempt to tackle. But what George had definitely uncovered was the oldest piece of extended literature in the world. The story dates back to at least the 20th century BCE. So, years before the epic poems of Homer, an Assyrian writer had penned, or more accurately, carved, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Parts of the story exist in other fragments found in Mesopotamia and Anatolia, but these 12 Akkadian tablets that some found and George Smith translated are the fullest version of the story. And what a story it is. If anyone is still labouring under the delusion that the ancient world was a boring place in which you tilled a few fields, said a few prayers, and then popped your clogs out of sheer boredom before turning 30? Listen up. So Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk. He's 60% god, 30% man, and 100% jackass. He keeps the men in the city too exhausted to revolt by forcing them to take him on at sports all day, this is not really a fair match given the 60% god factor, and he claims all the brides on their wedding nights. Basically, he sucks, and nobody likes him. So the people cry out to the gods for help. The gods, presumably feeling a bit bad because of the whole 60% god thing, respond by creating a man to be Gilgamesh's equal, hoping that will stop his oppression. But they don't create another part god, part man, maybe because that didn't work out so well the first time, Instead, they create Enkidu, who is more part man and part wild animal. Unfortunately, the gods seem to be so pleased with themselves at this stroke of brilliance that they then neglect to give him any instructions whatsoever. He hangs out with wild animals all day and helps himself to the locals' food because they're not already suffering enough. Eventually, the locals get completely fed up and send a temple prostitute to seduce him, thinking that that will tame him. Bizarrely, this actually works, and the obliging prostitute turned animal tamer takes Enkidu to a shepherd's village to learn about the ways of civilization, something the gods have also apparently left out. In the meantime, Gilgamesh has been having dreams that a new best buddy is on the way. Like tyrants everywhere, he's afraid of things he can't control, and he still loves his mum, so he goes running to her for help interpreting his nighttime visions. The Shepherds are a friendly crew, and they invite strangers round for a bite and a bed whenever they pass through. Over dinner one night, the talk turns, as it does, to local news. After the sports and the weather, they tackle the hot topic of Gilgamesh gatecrashing people's weddings. And Enkidu is so enraged that he decides to gatecrash a wedding too. He blocks Gilgamesh on his way into the wedding chamber, and they have an enormous fight. But then Enkidu realizes that Gilgamesh is much stronger than he is, and gives up, and they decide to become besties instead. So there goes that. Gilgamesh seals their friendship and puts the final nail into the gods' badly thought out plan by suggesting a road trip. They pick the Cedar Forest because the monster slaying potential is great that time of year. Ninsen, Gilgamesh's mum, adopts Enkidu as her son before they go, which is, admittedly, a bit weird. Every good road trip needs some sightseeing on the way, so they take the scenic route to the Cedar Forest. Gilgamesh has five terrifying dreams on the way about falling mountains, thunderstorms, wild bulls, and a thunderbird that breathes fire. Because he's still an idiot, he decides that these are good omens. When they eventually get to the Cedar Forest, a fierce battle breaks out between them and Humbaba, the guardian of the forest. The boys are terrified, but they whisper some very sweet nothings to each other, so that's nice. Seeing that it's all about to go completely south, the sun god steps in and ties Humbaba up in 13 winds. I'm guessing he just forgot to bring rope. This makes Humbaba much easier to kill, and Gilgamesh and Enkidu celebrate by chopping down half the forest. A little while later and back home, The goddess Ishtar notices how great Gilgamesh is looking in his armour, and how marvellous he is at killing things. But Gilgamesh rejects her because, apparently, she doesn't treat her lovers very well. So that goes to show that irony was alive and well in the ancient world. Ishtar doesn't take the rejection as well as she might, and sends the bull of heaven to avenge her honour. The bull obliges by wreaking havoc in the city. Enkidu and Gilgamesh oblige by killing it. Gilgamesh shows a real stroke of maturity by throwing one of its legs at the rejected and by now probably dejected goddess. The whole city throws a massive party, but Enkidu has an ominous vision about a failure heading his way. In the dream, the gods are fed up with the pair of heroes for killing Humbaba and their favourite bull, and they decide that one of them needs to die. Enkidu then has a second dream so terrifying that it kills him. Gilgamesh refuses to believe that his friend has died, and clings to the body until a maggot falls out of the nose, which seems to prove things pretty definitively. Gilgamesh throws a massive funeral for Enkidu, and then takes to the wild. He wanders around covered in animal skins, grieving for his friend, but also terrified now about the idea of his own death, which up till this point, he seems not to have thought very much about. The obvious solution is to avoid it completely. So he goes in search of Utnapishtim, to learn the secret of eternal life. He travels beneath the mountains and past a very happily married pair of scorpion people until he arrives at the end of the world where he finds a pub. He goes in for a beer because, let's face it, he hasn't had a great couple of months. The bartender is a goddess called Siduri. In classic bartender fashion, she listens to his sorrows and offers up some great advice. All mortals must die. She tries to encourage him to go back and enjoy the rest of his life while he still has it, but in classic woeful drunk fashion, he ignores her advice completely. She gives up, probably because arguing with drunk people is pointless, and tells him how to cross the sea. He finds the ferryman exactly where Siduri said he would, but unfortunately, Gilgamesh throws a spontaneous and completely random tantrum at this point and destroys the objects that would have allowed him to cross the waters of death. The ferryman sets him to work, and he has to cut down 120 trees to use as barge poles instead. Lots of deforestation in ancient literature. Gilgamesh's efforts are wasted, though, because when he does finally cross the sea and meets up with Utnapishtim, the latter reprimands him in no uncertain terms, telling him that trying to fight the fate of any human life is pointless and spoils the joy of living. He then recounts the story of his own immortality, And this is the bit that so excited George Smith that he became a temporary stripper. Utnapishtim says that the gods decided to send a great flood, but the god Enki warned him and told him to build a big boat. More deforestation ensued until he had a big enough ship to load in two of every animal and bob on top of the flooded world until the weather improved a bit. Some of the gods were so impressed by his survival that they gave him eternal life as a reward but it was a one-time deal. Gilgamesh can't repeat this. To prove his point, Utnapishtim challenges Gilgamesh to stay awake for six days and seven nights. Gilgamesh has every intention of doing this, but like university students cramming for exams, falls asleep pretty much immediately. The moral of the story is that he cannot conquer death when he cannot even conquer sleep. Gilgamesh is miserable, feeling that every chance of immortality has been taken away from him. He travels back, feeling very sorry for himself. But when he sees the walls of Uruk, he realises just how beautiful and magnificent the city is. He decides to stop being a jackass and to achieve immortality in reputation and legacy instead. So there we go, that's the epic of Gilgamesh. If that sounded a little disjointed to you, don't worry, you didn't miss anything. It is a little disjointed partly because it was written as separate poems, and partly because bits of it are still missing. As the poet and scholar Michael Schmidt suggests in his excellent book, Gilgamesh, The Life of a Poem, this epic can't really be read as a finished, polished composition like the Iliad or the Odyssey. Instead, Schmidt suggests, you have to approach it a little more like you do life. It's more untidy, more ambiguous, with bits missing and questions that can't be answered. And the beauty of that messiness is exactly the point of the story, and exactly the thing that Gilgamesh eventually manages to learn. Gilgamesh started out being called a god, and Enkidu started out being called a wild animal. The epic of Gilgamesh and his eventual redemption is really the story of their becoming human together. And what more can you ask from an epic tale? Thank you for joining us for this episode of Historical. If you enjoyed yourself, please head over to your streaming platform of choice and hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and a rating, and join us again next week, same time, same place, every Tuesday.